This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the microcosm of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be destroyed by my co-host, John Syracuse. I'm Dan Benjamin, and uh, this is episode 19. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our two sponsors today, GetHarvest.com and uh, Feltip's Sound Studio 4, which we'll tell you about as the program commences. How are you, John? I'm pretty good. It's a good day for you today. It's Friday before a holiday weekend. Yeah, it is. It's going to be nice. We got a hard stop in an hour, though. Hard right. stop. I mean, like hard. You just slam the slam the laptop shut and walk out the door. Kind of hard stop. We'll see what we can do. I hate doing that to you because I know you like to go long. It's all right. I think by the time an hour is up, this room will be pretty darn hot. Got to oh, figure yeah. out the summer podcasting situation. Ah, know, I, I don't yeah. think I can have the AC on because it will be too noisy. That's what Ooh. I was just doing, turning it off. Oh, why don't you throw it off? Flip the switch. We'll see. I don't want you to suffer. You should, shouldn't have to suffer for your art in 2011. I'll go as long as I can. We'll see. We'll just turn it on. Let's see hear what the noise is. All right, is. all right. Hang on a second. It might not be bad. Once we get you a good mic, it won't be bad. I'm not editing any of this out. It all stays. Well, what do you think? I don't hear a thing. No reason for you to suffer. It sounds great. All right. I will leave it on. I'll leave it on. I don't want you to... It'd be tough. I mean, you, you're angry enough as it is. Having I you guess. sweating in a sweat box in there, and then your whole family is, Dad, take a shower. Terrible. All right. Let's get started. We're on the clock. We're on the clock. Yep. Let's go. We're starting. Follow-up time. Yeah. So, what I did last week is I timed how long it took my toaster to toast a piece of bread. Ah. Start, starting from a cold start. What did you do last week? Uh, I moved 1,300 miles across the country. But did you time your toaster at no, all? No, I didn't. I did not. It was in a box in a moving truck somewhere. Unbelievable. I know. How long did it take? I was close with my estimate. It took five minutes and eight seconds. What? For a single piece of bread. Come on. Five minutes and eight seconds. I timed it. That's nuts. I know. That's That's... And you were asking me last week, like, how long does it take? I just said too long. Well, that's... That that's, is too long. That really is too long. Too long. It's just too darn long. Like, next time... It doesn't seem like a long time, but next time you wake up in the morning, look at your clock and wait until the hand moves five minutes and think that's how long it took to get a piece of toast. <laughs> that's how long John Syracuse waits for his toast. It's no good. That is really a long time. Now, before you get it too much into your tirade here, I, I just want to say straight up at the front of this, at the top of the show... The, the biggest response that I saw coming in about toasters was if what he wants is toast, why doesn't he just use a slot toaster oven? They make really good toast and both sides get toasted and it only takes like 45 seconds. So can we yep. just jump right to that point? Sure. Uh, I, I thought that kind of went without saying, or maybe it was just, I thought it was implied in my discussion of toaster ovens that, that, that I want a toaster oven because I use the oven part of it. I didn't talk about the oven part of it because that wasn't You just kept talking about toast. Right. But uh, the toast was the part that doesn't work in the toaster oven. The oven part of the toaster oven, you know, it works like an oven. I don't have particular complaints about that part. And the next question is, well, why not just get both of them? Why not have a slot toaster for toast and a toaster oven for whatever you use that for? Uh, I just don't have the counter space for two uh, appliances, you know. So it's like we have room for the, the toaster oven, but no place really to put the slot toaster where we to get one. Uh, so if I'm forced to choose between the two appliances, I pick the one that can do two different things. And uh, 
I mentioned in the last show that you shouldn't be making pizza in your toaster. I meant like cooking pizza. One thing that you should be using your toaster for or your oven uh, is for things like reheating a slice of pizza because you should not reheat leftover pizza in the microwave. It just becomes a soggy, disgusting mess. If you have a lot of pizza to reheat, yeah, use your oven. But if it's if you just have one slice of pizza and you want to heat it up for lunch or something, that's what the toaster oven is for. Um, and it works great. Even my crappy toaster heats up the pizza just fine. Uh, so that... That's the slot toaster versus toaster oven thing. I, I actually, I'll circle back to it after I talk about this uh, next bit here. So this is the best part about having a podcast or, or a popular podcast. We got an, uh, an email from someone who used to design toasters at Sunbeam in the 1980s. And he, he described all the different uh, aspects of toasters and why I'm unhappy with my toaster uh, in a nice long email. This is exactly the kind of thing you're looking for, like an expert, a guy who's been there yeah. in the trenches oh, yeah. to, to tell us about uh, toaster technology. Uh, so I'm not going to go into every detail that he got, we got to, but the, the main thing he uh, pinpointed about my toaster and the reason it takes so long is because it uses a steel tube with internal coiled resistant wire surrounding an electrical insulating chip to produce heat. I think I just mangled that. But anyway, it's the thing that heats up, the thing that turns orange is of a particular type that takes a long time to heat up. And his, his estimate was that it's going to take like at least two minutes before that thing starts glowing orange. And the glowing orange part is important because toasters heat up things in different ways. The ways he listed was uh, conduction, convection, and radiation. And radiation heat is the one you want to like brown your toast. And that only happens once, you, you know, once the thing turns orange, is, is uh, my impression from reading this email. So... Since it takes my toaster two minutes even to get that thing glowing orange, right away, that, that first two minutes is not making you toast. What it is doing is uh, it basically baking your bread or turning it into a crouton or doing something that's not toast. <laughs> right. you know, like it's making it hot and it's drying it out, but it's not toasting it. And the, the, uh, the benchmark for good toast is apparently you want the outside to be toasted and like lightly carbonized right, or browned or whatever, but the inside should not be all dried out. It should still be like moist. You shouldn't have taken every ounce of water and evaporated it out of the middle of the toast. So the longer that piece of bread sits in there, the more it becomes a crouton and the less it becomes toast, which is why slot toasters make better toast because they very quickly heat the outsides of the bread and yes, they do it evenly and so on and so forth. And because they do it so quickly, the inside is still moist. So when they pop up, you've got a toasted outside and a moist inside. Now, obviously I'm not a toast connoisseur. All I just want is the top and bottom to be cooked relatively evenly. And I can see how what, what he's saying is, is true, that if I had a slot toaster, the inside of my toast would be more moist than it is in this toaster because for the first two minutes, it's just, you know, taking moisture out of the bread. Um, that, that doesn't magically give me more counter space, but it does make me consider, like, is there something else I can move on the counters to make room for a slot toaster? Because maybe this is worth doing uh, if I can find a good slot toaster um, just, to, just to see what, the, what it's like to have better toast. Uh, but I, I think I would also be happy with a working toaster oven. Uh, so... The, uh, this guy, I should give his name here, Lowell Burnham. Some other thing he mentioned was uh, different kinds of heating elements in toasters. Uh, another one is a, a radiant coil inside a clear quartz tube, which apparently glows orange in about 15 seconds. It gets much hotter than the steel thing does. Uh, the, the only problem with that is that it, it could have a tendency to scorch uh, because it does get so hot. So it's like it's like a balancing between the, the the steel elements that I have that probably do a better job of baking without scorching versus these which do a better job of toasting, uh, and it is apparently a fairly big balancing act to get a toaster oven that does toast well, does oven well. It's a, it's a constant trade off, which is why he was basically saying you're never going to get a toaster oven that makes as good toast as a slot toaster because 
it's trying to do too many different things. And, and everything that works towards making better toast works against the oven function. I, I still was like something that has a reasonable balance, and I felt like I had a reasonable balance back in the day. He, he mentioned that the old Black & Decker I was talking about was actually a GE small appliances oven uh, that changed owners when GE was sold uh, to Black & Decker. So it shows, it shows that there is some memory of like that one model that we were all talking about. I right. think, uh, someone else was saying Westinghouse. I don't know if that was a related brand. But uh, back in the day when there were fewer models, apparently – uh, whatever balance that one struck over many years of refinement and development, I, <laughs> I liked that balance. And if I could find one that had that balance, uh, I would take it. And it was nice to see that in the show notes for last week's show, after it was over, you added your toaster and, and Marco's toaster, and then I added my toaster. So if you go back to last week's show notes, you can find Amazon links to all three of our toasters and compare them. <laughs> if you look at the Amazon reviews for my toaster, there's some horrible ones in there. Nobody likes it. Surprise, surprise. Uh, one person said it exploded firing shards of glass everywhere. Mine hasn't done that yet, but it's definitely not a good toaster. Yeah. Uh, your toaster was like 180 bucks, as predicted. Right. <laughs> and, and Marco's was in that price range, too. But I got to tell you, after looking at your toaster and hearing your, your reviews of it and looking at the reviews online and reading the manual and looking at the measurements and everything, I'm, I'm tempted to give your toaster a try. So it's, I put it on my Amazon wish list. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. You, my wife researched this toaster, and she is... She is the best at researching things and at finding, you know, I don't want to say finding deals because it's not about that. It's finding the the right quality to cost ratio. And she did a lot. She did like a lot of research on this toaster and because it had to look a certain way and be a certain thing with the other thing. And she, this is really the culmination of a lot of her you know her her research combined with my somewhat specific requirements of the that you know when I do want to uh, cook something in or do something it has to be a certain thing has to be easy to clean. Really like this toaster. I don't think Marco's toaster is worth your time. I got. Yeah, I, 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 I didn't put his on my wish list. That interface looked bad, and I didn't like uh, the horrible. idea that his his buttons were underneath the the lid the uh, the front lid thing that flaps down. Like when you open it, you're covering the controls. That just right. seems silly to me. Strange. This is also, I think, a little bit bigger. Your measurements are actually very similar to the measurements of my toaster, so it would fit in the spot I have on it for the counter. Uh, so anyway, it's on the list. Maybe I'll ask for it as a Christmas present. I, maybe I will buy it for you as a Christmas Won't present. Won't that be an exciting Christmas? A toaster! Maybe we should take a little donation from the audience that want, that, uh, want you to have this, and we you know, take a little fund it's or right. something. You don't, you don't have to pass the, the hat. I can, I can afford a toaster. It's just a question of... Uh, Pulling the trigger, deciding that I want this in my life and that I can't handle the toaster that I have now, or should I just continue to use the toaster that I have now until it actually does melt into a pile of cheap plastic and, and burnt metal? <laughs> well, because uh, I have no idea where we're going to be living and uh, and when we'll actually get our stuff into that place, I, if you can wait for however many weeks it takes to, for all of that to be sorted out, uh, if you can wait, then when the toaster finally arrives here in Austin, I will... I, I, we, I will time it. I will make a video for you. I'll do you whatever you video, like. Just, just a stopwatch. It's a cold start in the morning. Put the bread in. Close the door. Press the toast button. Start the clock. Take it out when you think it's done to your satisfaction. Right. I didn't go super dark toast. It was you know just brown. And it's wonder uh, bread. And also, by use, the right? way, I took mine out when the bottom was brown. The top was not even toasted yet because my toaster is so horrible. It does one side. So if I had waited for both, you can't wait for both sides to be done because by the time the top is done, the bottom is burnt. So I was going entirely based on the bottom. So it would take even longer if I had waited for the top to get some color on it. I have a bad toaster is the moral of the oh, story. Oh, yeah. Terrible. All right. Uh, 
couple more quick follow-ups. Uh, so I was talking about Twitter and in-band signaling the other day. Uh, and I'm surprised I didn't see more of this in the chat room, but one or two people in the chat room picked it up. But apparently I'm completely out of the loop on Twitter because in May of last year, at, at some presentation uh, in London, uh, Twitter announced a new thing called Twitter annotations, which is just what it sounds like. It allows you, when sending a tweet, to just tack on a bunch of annotations. That's metadata. That's exactly what I was talking about. It's basically arbitrary metadata for your tweet. So you could put in whatever you want there, and then clients just have to read that metadata and apply it. And apparently this is what Twitter itself uses, or something similar to do its like link shorten stuff, so that the text... It's not really what I wanted because the text in the tweet still has the, the link shortener link, the t.co thing. But then the annotations tell you what the real URL is. So you don't have to go look it up through the shortener or anything like that. But you could, in theory, use these annotations for everything, for you know who you're replying to. So you wouldn't have to have the at name at the beginning of the tweet. Um, links, you know, you could just have like byte range offsets. and uh, Or you could even do like a markup type thing where you just tag the, 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 the pieces of information and then link them back to a URL. Like basically... There is a facility for doing this. The fact that it hasn't been picked up is probably just momentum because you need you need the clients to support it, and it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. And who's going to be the first client to support this type of thing, or who's going to be the first client to generate these types of tweets, like sort of rich text tweets with annotations on them, when they're not sure that anybody else will be able to see it, or that it'll look all weird and screwed up when other people see it. So the transition is always the difficult part: transitioning from clients that work the way they do now to ones that use these annotations instead of everything being in line. So it may be too a little too late. But you can't really fault Twitter for not having an API. The, the only weird thing about it is that the, the total size of annotations can't be any more than 512 bytes. They're really big on their data limits. So you don't get, you could probably blow through that with, you know, a bunch of long URLs in a tweet and already you're out of limit. This is the total size of like the entire annotation, not just the values. This is, I think, like when you pack it up into JSON or whatever, that whole thing has to be like 512 bytes. And they, they say they're hoping to increase that up to 2K, but... It's not like for attaching images, for example, or anything like that. But they do have an API for it. And the, the fact that I had never heard of it shows just how few clients are apparently using this. Uh, it's kind of a shame that uh, it's out there and it doesn't seem to be a clear transition path. Uh, maybe when Twitter has completely wiped out all the third-party clients, they will be more free to more quickly innovate with the clients that they own and control, adding support for these annotations. All right. What else do we have on? Uh, what else have you got in there? In, the, uh, in one your last bag. Thing. Yeah. Uh, Intel SSD warranties are now up to five years. A bunch of people sent me that when we were talking about SSD reliability. Did you see that story go by this week? No, I totally like, missed that one. I haven't been following news as much because uh, everything going on. It's, what, what did it say? So it's like the Intel's new line of SSDs, like the you know their their brand new best performing SSDs now have a five year warranty on them, and. You know, the press releases say, you know, Intel is so confident and so happy with the reliability of its of its devices that it's increasing the warranty on these things to five years and they're they're working great and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people sent this into me, you know, saying, see, your worries are unfounded because these things have five year warranties and hard drives. Most hard drives only have three. Uh, so SSDs, you know, it, it, they must have a lot of uh, confidence that these things are uh, going to last a long time. When I see a company increase its warranties like that and do a press release about it, it makes me more wary Maybe I'm just cynical. More wary about reliability, not less. Because very rarely does a manufacturer increase its warranty with fanfare unless it's a reaction against uh, an, uh, you know, bad PR that they have reliability problems. You know, Like they want to show that we are not like those other SSDs All that right. have reliability problems. Ours are really safe. Trust us. Uh, but 
I mean, you could say like, well, who cares what the reasoning is? Five years is still five years. And whether they're doing it for cynical reasons or not, or just to try to get you to buy their stuff or try to counter the prevailing story about reliability, who cares? You still get a free one for five years. So I am pretty much happy that they're increasing the warranty to five years, but I am still suspicious of the reliability. And the other thing about this warranty is that it's not like five years, period, full stop. It's five years, but there's like fine print text that says, but we have our own little internal calibration on each uh, drive that says you get X number of gigabytes of I.O. per unit of time, and if you blow through what we consider to be the uh, the lifetime's work of this SSD, and if you blow through that in a year and a half or two years because you're constantly reading and writing huge blocks, well, then tough, you don't get your warranty. And they have a, a, different, a different price range for like enterprise usage versus regular usage. Uh, and while I was clicking around on those stories, I saw someone else's uh, link. I, I wish I could find it, but I couldn't find it over the show notes. But they were showing what their drive was reporting as the useful life left in it after using it for a year, because you could just you can query the drive and say uh, what how much lifetime you have left, like sort of like the oil lifetime on your car or whatever. And he was way farther through the lifetime of his drive than he thought he would be after only a year and a half or so. Uh, I don't know what Intel's numbers are for the usage, but the fact that there's a tiered thing for enterprise versus regular user and stuff. And the fact that the five-year thing is null and void if you go through what it considers to be a reasonable amount of I/O, you know, it just gets back to the you know the nature of solid-state storage is that there's a limited number of writes that you get, and once you go through them, it's a physical limit on the storage. That's that's it. You know, there's no getting around that. So they you know they give you overcapacity sometimes. The enterprise drives they give you like four or five times the space you actually need to give you the headroom to do all those writes, and when you wear out a certain section of cells, they move to another one. You know, th- these things will be sorted out in time. Uh, I think the warranty increase is a move in the right direction. I just hope Intel doesn't lose its shirt on the warranty increase. They probably won't because most people will buy these things and not use them that heavily, and so it'll be fine. But I, I have a feeling that I use my drives pretty heavily, uh, given the amount of disk thrashing I see my uh, system doing most of the time, especially with all the backups, constantly reading all, reading all this data, downloading big right, files, stuff right. like that. Uh, so I continue to wait. Once I can get a one terabyte SSD for a reasonable price, I will almost certainly buy one. But that day is not today. All right. I think that's all the follow-up I have. Record time, huh? That was a really good time. I mean, 20, 22 minutes. No, less than that. 18 less. minutes. Yes. It's fantastic. You want to do sponsor or are you going to stick it in later? I'll stick it in now. This episode is sponsored by Harvest, a time-tracking and invoicing web-based application. You can send your clients beautiful, professional invoices via email, PDF, or on the web. You can accept online credit card and check payments and more. You can even, this is cool, while you're traveling. I know you travel a lot. You fly a lot, right, John? For work? Not me. A lot of people do. A lot of people aren't like us, and they, they don't mind getting on planes. And uh, when they're out there, they want to, you know, they want to expense stuff, or they want to give, uh, they want to give their receipts to the system. How do they do that? Well, with this, you could just, you can take a picture of your receipt and upload it straight into the app. How cool is that? Well, Harvest is free for 30 days. But if you use code 5x5TV, all one word, all uppercase, you'll get 50% off your first month after the 30 days. So check them out at getharvest.com. Love these guys. Now let's, let's make it worth their while. Go check these guys out. Getharvest.com. I've heard so many horror stories of people who do travel for work have the things they have to go through to get reimbursed oh yeah for the expenses that they incur that that is perhaps the is the, least, the least evolved part of corporate culture so many other parts of you know have gotten better over the years but that's like that's where the the, the trolls live 
in the department that tries to give you the money for your cab fare or whatever. All right. Ready for uh, this show's topic? I'm so ready. I'm ready. You're not ready. This, no. is, this is a topic you didn't want to oh, do. Oh, no, not this one. Yes, this was this is the one. All right, I mean, well, you're lucky. It'll be it'll be a, you know it has to be short. Yeah. So you you're, you will suffer not too much. Microwave ovens. No. Oh. So I'm going to talk about the Finder. Um, this was something I talked about a lot a while ago, and I don't feel like I've talked about that much since. But people are sick of hearing about it from me, so there is sort of this. I don't know, uh, worn out factor to the topic. That's probably why you don't want to hear about it. But you're going to, because I think it's time. So I wrote about this originally about eight years ago. It makes me feel old to say that, but that's how long it was. And I think probably to this day, it is my least understood article. Mostly because I did a bad job of communicating. It's not the fault of the reader that it was least understood. It's, it's my fault. Now, when I go back and read it, it looks like everything I wanted to say is in there. So it's not like I didn't say what I wanted to say, but I said a bunch of other stuff too. And if you're not me, you don't know which stuff you should be concentrating on. Like it was, it was just too big and flabby, really. This is linked in the show notes. It's the first link in the show notes. The title of the article was about the finder uh-huh. it's from April 2003. Um, I tried to, when I did a, a, a retrospective like last year, about 10 years of Mac OS 10 reviews, I tried to summarize the issues that were, described originally in that 2003 article and i think that's a better you know read six paragraphs and figure out what the heck i'm talking about uh summary but it does assume knowledge of everything that came before it i think so i'm not sure how good it is for a starting point but i have that in the show notes as well the page i linked to you just have to scroll down a little bit to get to the part where i talk about the finder again uh so this time on the show i'm gonna i'm gonna give it another another run on this topic because maybe talking i'll be better than I was writing about it. I really doubt it, but we'll give it a go. And I'm going to try a slightly different angle this time because every other thing that I've tried has not worked that well. Um, this requires some participation from you, meaning you should ask questions and, and challenge me on things that don't make sense to you because I've really just talked about and thought about this so much I may be glossing over things. Okay. So, Thank you for permission so to do that. To be on your, to be on your to you. toes. All right. All right. So, what, what the heck are we talking about? Uh, this is my new angle. My new angle, as, as I usually do on this show, is to start from the history, and I will it, put it in a historical context and okay. see if that will help us. So, uh, what I'm going to describe here is what were the earliest sort of mass market PC interfaces? What were they like? Like, you know... PCs that were used more than by a dozen or so people. What do you don't mean early? Like the first time, I don't know, like Apple II, IBM PC, the first time the personal computer started to appear as a phrase in Time Magazine and stuff like that, the dawning of the PC age. Um, so what were those interfaces like? And how I'm going to categorize them is they were like conversations. So you turn on this this PC thing that you got and it would do some stuff and eventually you'd be faced with sort of a blinking prompt asking for input so that was the the conversation starter was the computer saying to you and what 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 will you have me do provide me with some instruction right and there's really no indication what it is you should do with that like you had the paper manual that came with the computer and you could read about it and you could learn something uh but 
just looking at the, if you just brought the computer out of the box, you never used a PC before, you turned it on, you got that blinking prompt. Assuming you could even figure out that it wanted you to type on the keyboard to enter text at that prompt, which you would probably figure out shortly, you don't know what to type. But uh, presuming you read the manual or whatever, you know, you would type an instruction. That's your side of the conversation. And then you'd hit return to send it to the computer, and the computer would give you an answer. It would either tell you the result of the question that you asked, or maybe it would ask follow-up questions, or it would do something in response to your command. But it was basically a conversation. You tell it what to do. It gives information back to you. You tell it something different. It gives information back, back and forth, right? And that was the, the dominant paradigm of using a PC as far as people were concerned, uh, basically until the Macintosh. I mean, uh, and again, I'm only talking mass market. I don't want to get email from the people who will tell me that, you know, such and such computer had a GUI before the Mac and everything. Right, but the, yeah. the Mac was the one that popularized this for better or for worse. And, it, you know, it gets the credit in history. So when the Macintosh came around and it started to be, appear in magazines and everything, it was a different experience. You turned on a Mac when you first got out of the box. And you didn't get a command prompt. So there was no, you know, the, the reason you got a command prompt on all those other computers is there was like usually basic or something built in. So what you were typing at in the beginning was probably a basic prompt or you were going to type some sort of command to tell it what drive to load, uh, you know, the program out of or whatever or to boot from this drive or to run this program on this drive or something like that. But when you turn it on a Mac, you didn't get a prompt of any kind. And if you, didn't, if you just took it out of the box, plugged it in and turned it on, what you would get is a picture on the screen of what was supposed to be a floppy disk, which may or may not have been recognizable to people because these disks look a little bit different than the older floppy disks, with a blinking question mark on it. And I was trying to tell you, like, that's its, its visual way of saying, disk? Do you have a disk for me? And there's nothing you could do with that screen. You couldn't type stuff. There was no command prompt. There was, you couldn't, you know, click on anything, was, even if you know how to use the mouse. It was saying that it needed a disk uh, with pictures, but uh, not with words, which is interesting thing because it saves on localization. You know, obviously this has to be in the ROM. You don't want to have to localize the ROM. So you use a picture of a floppy disk with a question mark. Uh, assuming you figured out that, that it wanted a disk, you take the disk that the computer came with and you'd shove it in there and it would start going through all the stuff. It would bring up a little box that says, welcome to Macintosh. And eventually it would boot into what we now know as the finder. But what, if you were just looking at this, you would say there's a bunch of pictures on the screen with little rectangles that look kind of like little pieces of paper with the corner folded and little diamond shapes and then windows with scroll bars and all this sorts of stuff. And it, it wasn't asking you for anything. There wasn't a prompt where I expected you to type some commands. It was more like you were looking at this thing. Now, the, the thing was the, the desktop, the desktop metaphor. When, when people were writing about the Macintosh early on, that's what they, were, they loved to talk about. Like, you know, there's a little trash can in the corner. Isn't it adorable? And these little icons look like folders. And it's just, it's just like an office, not really a desk. You know, it's like an office. You know, and your office has a trash can. Your office has folders. Your office has pieces of paper. You know those things, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is what people got stuck on, especially in the early days. Whenever they talked about the Mac, they're like, wow, it's easy to use because it uses this metaphor of things that people are familiar with. Right. You don't have to learn very much to use it. Right, but they were saying like it's because because people already know what a trash can is, and because we have you know the the graphical capabilities to draw something that people will recognize as a trash can because the pixels are really small, right? And we have good artists and stuff, and we can draw this little thing that looks like a folder, and people know what folders are already. So there's not there's nothing to learn. It's familiar, right? That's all people were talking about that, but I think that's a distraction. The maybe in the early days that was important in terms of like making people feel comfortable. So they're not intimidated because they see symbols on the screen that that look like things that they are familiar with. But the real difference was that it stopped being a conversation and almost an adversarial conversation where the computer says, now you will type something here 
And you were saying, I don't know what to type. I'll try this. And it would say, no, you have typed the wrong thing. Try, try something different. No, that's the wrong thing, too. You type that. Okay, now I'll do what you told me to do. But I'm not going to tell you really what that was. Maybe I'll tell you whether it was successful or not. Maybe silence means it was successful. You know, that was intimidating versus this thing where what it gave you is not a conversation, but a thing. Um, now, I, I got my first Mac when I was like 9 or 10 years old in 1984. And giving this computer to me, and I, I had Macs before, or not Macs before, I had computers before that booted to a prompt and I had done basic programming and stuff like that. So I understood the concept of booting to a prompt to do this thing. But you gave me this other thing, did not boot to a prompt, booted to this this desktop and the, the mouse controlled the cursor and it was pretty clear what you did with the mouse it was just like a kind of an extension of your hand you move it around the screen it's got one button on the mouse what do you do is when the little arrow is over something you push the button and you see what the heck happens <laughs> it was kind of, it was kind of like giving someone like an ant farm or like a tavern puzzle or one of those 161 kits it was a, it was like a thing not not a not a conversation not not a challenge not not a game but a thing where you could poke the thing and you'd see how it would react, like in a, in a you know an ant farm. You know, so what happens if I stick a stick in there? What happens if I cover over this little ant hill? You know, what happens if I turn it upside down and shake? Or, or you know, a tavern puzzle. You know, what happens when I pull this metal thing out? What happens when I, you know? So even as a nine-year-old who had never seen a GUI before, you could pretty quickly figure out. All right, well, there's only really one way to get input of this. I wasn't touching the keyboard because there was no there was no prompt. There was no type. You know, the number of things you can type on a keyboard is nearly infinite. But clicking, it's like well. I can click on these little pictures on the screen. And eventually you figure out if you click two times fast, it does something different. You can click and hold down and it drags. You you could figure out how it worked without having to read a manual and without having to type every possible string of characters that you can type on a keyboard. Uh, and that, in my view, was was the big difference between the Macintosh way and the pre-Macintosh way, sort of the GUI and the non-GUI way. It's not, not the desktop metaphor and all the little folders and letting people know what the things were, but the fact that you could figure it out by trial and error in a reasonable amount of time because it worked more like a physical yeah. object than than like you know some sort of obscure game system. Right. Well, there's a lot of value though to that to that metaphor. Yeah, I mean, obviously the metaphor was helping too because you know the thing that looked like a folder, you'd have some notion of what it might do. Right. You, know, you could open kid, it. You could put stuff in it. You know. Yeah, I mean, it, it was helping you understand what was going on. If they had made them circle squares and diamonds, it would have been more di- uh, difficult to understand. <laughs> but, but even if they had make them cir- made them circle squares and diamonds, kids in particular would figure it out. Because if you think about video games at the time, everything on screen was like a circle or a square or a diamond or some other simple shape, very crude, crudely drawn with big hunk and pixels. But we didn't really care. Like the abstraction went away because you could figure out like, okay, I, in asteroids, I'm this little arrow shape thing. Right, but it's clear, you know, whatever shape it is, you could have made it circle, diamond, whatever. It's it's you. That's you. That's the thing. It shoots. The asteroids hit you and you die. And no matter what shape any of those objects are, you could change them all into completely different pictures. The game still makes sense once you use it. Now, the finder, it's right in his name, is that the point of the finder was to find things. Uh, and it's, it's interesting to contrast the the way you find things, the conversation way versus the Macintosh way. So... Knowing what things you were supposed to be finding is one thing. You know, the fact that they looked like little pieces of paper with the corners folded or folders could tell you if I'm looking for something, it's probably one of those piece of paper things. It's like my electronic piece of paper or and they might be inside of the folder or something like that. But and on other screens you didn't know that. But pretend you knew what it was you were finding. The conversation way it was like like a text adventure. What you would do is like you get at the prompt and you type like look room and that's the equivalent of like LS or dir or one of those commands. And that would this is, you know, like Infocom Text Adventures. And it would say exits are A, B, and C, you know. And those are like, it would list the files and folders in there. And then you'd say, okay, fine. 
go to A or go north. And that's, that's CD, right? Change directory. And then you type look room again, and it would tell you what's in that room, right? If anyone's played a text adventure, this is the process of wandering around a text adventure. You, there's text printed on the screen explaining to you what's around, but you have to prompt you to say, tell me what's here. Where are my exits? Okay, go into that exit. Look around here. Do that to that. Take this thing and put it on top of that. Examine this. Okay, go here. Go there. All the while you're moving around, your current location is kind of kept in your head. And you can ask the computer, where am I, right? That's the sort of the state. You can say, where am I? You can type current working directory and it'll say, you're in the north lobby. There exits, north, south. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And then you spend a while and they're doing stuff or whatever. And you come back and go to the computer and say, where, where am I? Tell me again, right? But if you're just working, you're maintaining that state in your head. of Like, what is my current directory? How did I get here? What are the contents of this directory? You know, stuff like that. Now, the Macintosh way was more like, I was trying to come up with a good analogy for what this is, but it was not like a text adventure. It was more like, like I said, like a physical thing. Like say you were looking for something in a toolbox, like one of those big red toolboxes in a garage with 15 million drawers. Although it's more like an infinitely deep toolbox. kind right. of like Right. Drawers within drawers within drawers. You open a drawer and inside that is another drawer and inside that is another drawer. But that's, that shouldn't distract from the fact that that's the process of doing stuff, that your, your look room equivalent is you open the drawer, and there is no command to look in the room. You just look with your eyes, and you see what are, what are the contents of this. You know, when, when I open this folder, it opens this window. What's in that window? I don't ask the computer what's in the window. The, the computer shows me, and if I can't see something, just like if I can't see something in a drawer, I like pull the drawer out more, move stuff out of the way. You know, you dig around. You rummage around in there. And yes, you may find another drawer inside there, inception style, and open that drawer and look what's in there, right? And so the state of where you are and what it was you were looking at was maintained visually by the computer. You didn't have to remember where you were. You would just look and see, like, you know, what, what is in the, what is, where am I? What is in this place that I am? And, you know, the, there was a title bar of the window or whatever, but you would see this is what's in this window. And especially in the early days, it was like three or four icons per window. You could see everything that was in either one of them. And if you wanted to know, well, how did I get here? Uh, well, you could see, like, where the drawer was sticking out of, uh, in other words. So, so you could see by where the drawer, when you double click the folder, it would do that little animation and it would show you this is coming from there. It was very crude animation because it was 1984, but it would have a series of lines saying, you know, that folder that you double clicked is now opening this thing and that's where it came from. And it would gray out the, the place where it came from and the new window would be in that location and that's where the stuff would be. Uh, and you'd scroll around to look for stuff. And, and, and that's the key part is the, the looking around for stuff was literally looking around. Like when you rummage through a, like a junk drawer for something, you are... You know, and if the drawer is messy, it's going to be harder to find stuff. You know, but but you you can look around for stuff by you know scrolling is not much different than pulling out the drawer more or moving stuff out of the way with your hands. And you can move stuff around and arrange things however you want it. And if you're into like organization, you can make a nice neat junk drawer where you just say, okay, well, let me I keep going in this drawer to get stuff. Let me just arrange stuff the way I want it to be so it'll be, you know, it'll be easier to find next time. Uh, maybe I'll put them in alphabetical order. Maybe I'll put them in little groups. Maybe I'll just arrange them arbitrarily. Maybe I'll put my favorite ones on the upper left and you know whatever you want to do. But eventually, what you'd do is you'd have a place for everything and everything in its place, uh, visually. And this is, this is kind of a bargain that people are used to. Kind of, let me arrange things in places, right? And people are used to this in the real world, because this is what, this is what keeping your house is like, or you're, you're arranging your room or whatever. It's up to you to more or less, you know, keep your silverware in a nice, neat pile so that you know where the forks are instead of putting all your silverware into a big jumble. If you want to put all your silverware in a big jumble, fine. And when you want to go in there looking for a fork, you can, you know, sift through the stuff and find the fork. Or whatever. But that's up to you. This is the bargain of life, and this, is, this was the bargain that the Mac presented you with, was that you could arrange things however you wanted, and if you're a neat person, you can be neat, and if you're a sloppy person, you can be sloppy. 
Uh, and what it did, whether you were neat or sloppy, was it eventually let you build up a memory of where things are. Uh, the same way, kind of, this is an example I used from one of the earlier articles. Uh, I'll bring it out again just because I think it's, it's still a, a good one. The same way when you move into a new house, which you'll be doing shortly, hopefully. I hope When so. you first move in, you don't really know where all the light switches are. Right, so every time right. you come in a room, you're like, "Is this on the inside?" Especially if you come, move to New England from someplace else. New England puts light switches to the bathrooms on the outside. Crazy stuff like that from you know really old houses. Just so you uh, can like goof on on your kids and turn the light off while they're in there in the shower. Yeah, I don't know why that is. Some person who's a contractor in New England will send us an email and explain why they have the light switches. Can on you the outside. can you do your best New England accent of the, uh, imitating the contractor coming in and what he would say? I do not have a New England accent, nor can I imitate one. Nor can most people in Hollywood, but uh, I know one when I. <laughs> You can do Boston. But yeah. So, but when you've been there for a while, eventually you remember where the light switches are. And it's not like you spent some time like, okay, kids, we're going to spend an hour tonight to memorize where all the light switches are. You don't expend any effort on remembering where the light switches are. You, just, you lived there for a week, two weeks. Eventually, you remember where all the light switches are. How, how the hell do you do that? How is it that suddenly you know where all the light switches are and you expended literally zero conscious thought to remember where the light switches are? Well, you remember where they are because they don't move. And, you know, yeah, you didn't choose, you didn't even choose to put them there. But, you know, some other person put them in crazy positions. But eventually you remember where they are. Just, you know, we call it muscle memory or whatever we call it. Obviously, your muscles don't actually have memory. These are all phrases that we've come up with to describe the sensation of us not having to use our people brains to remember where things are. It just happens automatically. So it's like, it's obviously not me. I'm not thinking about it. It's muscle memory. My muscles know. So when I walk into the room, even if it's like in the middle of the night, I'm getting up to take a leak. My hand just automatically flicks the light switch on. I didn't think about it. It just happened, right? So this obviously it's easy for something stationary, like the light switches don't move. But you can have the same experience with things that you choose to put somewhere. Like eventually when you move into a new house, you decide where you're going to put the scissors. So that every time you want the scissors, you go and get the scissors. Eventually, you stop thinking about where the scissors are. You, you're, you just go, oh, I need to go get the scissors. It's like a macro. Your body gets up, walks through the house without hitting any of the walls, correctly turns on all the light switches on its way there, opens the drawer where you know the scissors are, takes the scissors out of the drawer, maybe you're not even looking, walks back with the room of the scissors, and you do your thing. Right? Because you chose that the scissors are always going to be in this drawer, and you've been living in this house for a while, and you've you know, arranged the furniture in a certain way, and the rooms are connected in a certain way, and the light switches are a certain way, all because it behaves like the physical world. And it's not, not surprising that people are good at doing this, because people have been living in the physical world since there have been people. You have to navigate 3D space, look at things with your eyes, and do repetitive tasks without thinking about them. Because if we had to think like, you know, like a, you're programming a robot, pick up your foot, move it forward slightly, lean your body forward. Now your, foot, your body is starting to tilt. Catch it with your foot. Catch the, I mean, we don't think like that. Things become sort of automatic for us to do because we've, this, this is just how we evolved. If we had to think consciously about every little thing that we did, we would not be a successful species. So... The human mind, body, and brain are completely tuned to do things based on visual input with our hands physically without thinking about it. Uh, and this is the, the most efficient possible way that you can do anything really. Uh, now, the reason this ties back to the Mac is that this is what the Mac was like, especially to a young child who had no, to a, no, no uh, thing to – it wasn't a change from anything. It was like the first interface that I've used, right? It was like a, little, like a little toy box, like a little place where you could rearrange things. Now, they weren't real things. They were flat, two-dimensional things, right. but they behaved like real things. They behaved, it was like a little diorama, okay? And 
you could you just move things around, arrange things. Like it was like a little tiny world in there. And and the great thing about it was that you know you could draw lines and erase them, and you didn't you know it wasn't like paper; they were erased perfectly. You could arrange things perfectly and align them on this pixel grid, which is difficult to do in real life and everything. But but it was this little world that you could manipulate. And the experience of the Mac was that you turned it on, and that's what you saw. Like it wasn't like a program that you ran, right? It it wasn't like you were running the Finder program. Then you you know when you turned the computer on and it booted, this is what you saw applications ran on the computer when you launched an application then you saw something else and it was like oh okay this is this application's interface and it has palettes or it's a game or you know it's it's whatever but when you quit the application nothing else is running you just saw the computer right the finder is what you saw when all the applications were closed there was no closing of the finder right to close the finder was to turn off the computer and the the upshot of this is uh, what i wrote way back in 2003 and i still believe to this day is that back then the finder was the computer it's not like it was a program running on the computer. The Finder was the computer. When it, was, it was a magical little world called the Finder, and that was the entire computer. And then you could run things on top of it, and those were just like bonuses. And the reason the Mac was more friendly and people liked it was not, in my opinion, so much because of the desktop metaphor, but because that when everything was quit and closed and you were just left with the computer, you were left with this little diorama thing that people could understand and manage. They understood how it worked because it worked like the real world. And if you used it for any reasonable period of time, it was like the light switches in your house. You arranged things in a certain way. You knew where things were or you chose not to arrange them and you just lived with the, ju- the messy junk drawer. But at least you knew where the junk drawer was, right? And it was, it was a, a bargain that people were used to. And it felt friendly. It felt less effort than remembering, which you'd have to make a conscious effort to remember all these commands. Very few people, you know, programmers or maybe or Unix geeks and stuff have the capacity to remember all these commands because you do have to read man pages in the beginning and remember what that flagged ls is and remember what order the arguments go on on the ln command and stuff like that like even no matter how good you are at memorizing computers you have to make some effort and some people can never cross that threshold you know some people you try to teach simple command line stuff they never they never get over the hump they you know it is an effort but if if you put someone in front of a, a 1984 macintosh and you make them use it for a week to do simple tasks they will eventually figure out the, the very least the finder part of it of like okay well where's that file okay it's over here over here there it is or although you know put stuff on a desktop or whatever um and so that was that was the 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 thing that the mac represented to me that was what made it what they called user friendly right uh, it was because it wasn't a com- an adversarial conversation where you weren't getting any hints by the computer it was because it was more like a thing now, what else do I have here in my last remaining 10 minutes? Which part so, am I supposed to be interrupting you on? Well, so, all right. We'll get to it, I think. All right, okay. let, me, let me do the second sponsor. We also want to say thanks to Sound Studio 4. It's an easy to use. I love this app. You've used this app. It's an easy to use Mac app for recording and editing digital audio on your computer. You can digitize tapes, vinyl records. You can record live performances, podcasts. Whatever you want to do, and you can edit with it too. You can do mixes, crossfades, tweak the levels and the EQ, and you can export in all of your favorite formats, AIF, WAV, MP3, AAC, even John Syracuse's favorite, the Og Vorbis. And you can try Sound Studio 4 for free for 15 days, fully functional, by visiting felttip.com slash SS for Sound Studio. Or if you just uh, want to go check it out in the App Store, you could do it. They sell it there. Just search for Sound Studio or Sound Studio 4 and you'll find it. Love this app. Use this app constantly. Anytime I need to just do straightforward recordings, I don't want to have to mess with logic and all that stuff. That's an overkill for most people, really. This is my go-to app. Highly recommended. Please go check them out. 
You use that, right, John? I do have Sound Studio. I think I got it in one of those bundles way back when. But yeah. I probably don't have the latest version. Well, he's, it was, it was, that was my SoundEdit 16 replacement. That's right. It's a small it's app shop. They've continued to update it. It's very much, you know, it's a 64-bit app now. It's come a long way. A lot of new stuff in, in version 4 that I'm happy with. Yeah, for years, I was I was looking for a replacement for Sound Edit 16, which was my old go-to. You just want to edit some audio app, and I couldn't find one. Sound Studio was the one I came up with years ago. Um, haven't updated it since, probably because it just still works. But I'll take a look at the newer version. So, where was I? Now, for everything that I just described to work, for for that to happen, for that whole magical moment of just like not having to think about it and getting used to where things are and everything for that to work things have to be recognizable and and recognizable without reading no reading reading is like the you know the krugman is that his book don't make me think no, i'm thinking of the economist what's that guy steve, steve krug is don't make me think there you go right yeah. when i hear that i think don't make me read so things have to be recognizable, and that doesn't mean making me read them. So I have to type a DIR or LS and get a content and, and read stuff, or even I have to type CWD and read that thing. No reading. Don't make me read. Uh-huh. Now, the, the, the best way we recognize things is with our senses, because, you know, again, we, we, don't, we didn't involve, evolve inside a computer. We evolved in the world. That's how we recognize everything, with our senses. All right? So I, you know, the best way to recognize things, given computer technology, is visually. It's, it, it could be argued that sound might be adding sound to the mix would help but right now we don't do that and i would say like smell is another one <laughs> we recognize things in the real world visually with sound with, with all our senses with taste i guess but we're not quite ready to go for smell of vision uh or tasting our computer screens <laughs> right. sound maybe but no one has figured out a way to do that it's not annoying because sound can be kind of annoying so we on the screen we recognize things visually and, and that's what the, the original finder used and the way that worked is that when you opened a folder there would be a single window that was tied to that folder, and that window would have a certain size, shape, and position that you could adjust because it's like a little thing, right? And because you chose how big to make it and where to put it and the arrangement of things inside it, you would come to recognize that arrange- that visual thing with like – you'd recognize it visually the same way you recognize you know, a room in your house or a street or any- anything else you recognize visually. Oh, that's that window because I recognize it by looking at it, right? And – any changes to that state, rearranging the contents, scrolling a little bit, you know, changing the size, moving it, that had to be maintained by the computer. Because if it wasn't, then when you saw something on the screen, that visual information would not be a reliable means of identification. And it doesn't take much of a deviation to make you start discarding that information. That if you, if you did some sort of tweak, like, let me move that over there, and then the next time you opened it, it wasn't over there... You start to, you know, consciously or not, you start to say, well, I can't rely on these things that my eyes are seeing to help me identify things. I have to, I have to start reading, basically. Like, oh, that looks like that window I used last time. Well, no, but, you know, oh, that looks like it's the same arrangement of icons. Well, is it? Well, let me, let me, I have it to read, you know, because if, if any of these changes that you made, if you tried to arrange your workspace, if you tried to, like, say you're a painter, you put the, the you know, the bottle, the, the big cup of water over there and your palette over here and you put the red in the corner and the black over there and the white over there and and you put the little towel over this bar so you can get to it and and you have your seat here and your sandwich is behind you if you make that nice arrangement then you spend the time doing that and then something moves and you go for the water thing and it's not where you left it you're gonna be like okay i obviously can't get to that water thing by just looking for it i have to you know look it up by name or something obviously the analogy falls down because the computer world is different but the point is as soon as you stop behaving like the real world does in terms of state retention the user will just start discarding that as valuable information and they have to use something else. And mm. what that something else is is usually reading. Like, where am I? I have, to, I have to read something now. And that is way, way less efficient 
you know, you'll never get to that sort of, I know where all the light switches are thing if you have to start reading stuff. Now, the finder that I described in the beginning is the way the finder worked for 16 years, 1984 through 2001 yeah. or so. Yeah, the old school finder, your favorite finder. Yeah, and, and that's what I call the spatial finder. Spatial is, you know, as in, you know, objects in space type of thing. Uh, I don't think I coined that term. I probably read it somewhere way back when uh, and have just been repeating it since. But when I say spatial finder, that's what I mean. And when other people say it, I'm not sure what it is they mean. I hope they mean the same thing as I do. But that's you're, what you're I talking mean. about. You're talking about the same thing. If you've seen Jurassic Park, and that's not the spatial finder. That's not the spatial. Cool. Okay, what is that thing? That, that is thing on SGI. That's actually a real program. Uh, that is actually you the fly through the file system. No, you don't, it, those are just like tiles that would fly at you. Yeah, yeah. That's not the spatial. Okay, finder, what no. is it then? All right, so. So it's what I just described. It's it's the, that finder that works that way. That there's the windows are tied to a single folder. That any sort of state change you make to the arrangement of icons or the size and position of the windows is retained. That's it. That's and it. Simple. The thing, the, the thing about the spatial finder is it's not it's not like fetishizing the past or some weird set of rules that you have to comply to, like religion. Like, oh, well, here's just an arbitrary set of rules, and it's 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 our Bible, and we don't question why it's there, and you just have to comply to it because we're selling you it's good. Now, the spatial finder is a means to an end. The whole point of the spatial finder, whether they intended it or not, the, the reason it worked is because the way that it behaved allowed the visual spatial information to be significant, and it engaged that incredibly powerful part of your brain that would recognize that stuff. And if it worked differently, if you broke one of these rules of the spatial finder, then that you would stop leveraging that part of the brain. So if it didn't retain visual state, if you could have multiple windows open that all represented the same folder, when you made a state change to it, you'd be like, well, so am I, am I changing the size of this folder? But Because I see it over there, and it's a different thing. So next time I open it, where is it going to, you know, you don't think about this consciously, but basically what it boils down to is that you won't spend the time to arrange stuff because you don't have any confidence. You don't even know what it is you're arranging. You don't have any confidence that it's going to be the same way the next time you use it. So in Mac, in Mac OS X, they introduced a new model to the Finder, which is not new, it was not new in 2001 when Mac OS X came out, but it was new to the Mac, and that, that's browsing. And we're all familiar with browsing from web browser. It's basically the window is kind of like a device through which you can view many things, like right. a magic, magic device, a magic portal. And the browser window is wherever it is, but the contents of that window can be anything, right? And as you change the contents of the window, the window itself doesn't change. So you don't, you know, a particular website isn't in a, in a particular position on your screen. The browser is like a little device, and you could view that same website in seven browser devices all at the same time. Um, and that's the direction they wanted to go with the Finder in Mac OS X. There's also another model on top of that, which is, of course, Search, which has always existed but has come become more important where you type stuff in and it just gives you a list of matches independent of where they are in, in the file hierarchy right now all these models i described are useful in various contexts uh, my main complaint with mac os 10 was that they ditched the first one they ditched that spatial model they introduced browsing which is good and has many purposes they made search a lot better with spotlight but they decided that that first one wasn't important and they decided that basically through neglect because they say, well, can't you use the Mac OS X Finder like that? Can't you just make all your windows not have sidebars and toolbars? You can't. There's, 
you can try to arrange things as much as you want, but the Finder will thwart you because it will spawn windows that are browsers or you'll browse to a location in a browser window and change the size of the window and not realize you're changing the size of the window window that you see in the other mode. Or maybe you think you're changing it, but you're not. Or when you change to icon view in, in, in the browser, are you changing to icon view next time you open that window from the dock? Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. Like I said, it doesn't take much to throw you off to make this information not reliable. Uh, and it's a shame that they ditched that model because it is the most efficient way that people recognize things. I, I had a hard time convincing people of this back in the, in the 2001 days uh, because they were saying, well, you know, I use the web browsers are great. I use them all the time, and I like tabs and cool stuff like that, and I use Windows, which doesn't exactly behave this way, and I'm fine with it. And in fact, I like Windows Explorer, and I like browsing. You know, browsing is, is all well and good, but I, it was difficult to convince people, especially people who hadn't used the Mac for all that time, that the, the spatial way of doing things is good. Abstractly, they just don't get it. But today, I can use iOS is an example. Springboard, which is the thing you see when you turn on an iPhone with a little grid of icons, right. that is a spatial interface. You pick where you want those little icons to go by dragging them around or whatever, and they don't move after you put them there. And when new ones appear, they get tacked onto the end or whatever, but like stuff stays where you put it, and you have different screens in them, and it's like left and right. You know, it's, not, it's a limited spatial world. There's not really, you know, they added folders, but you don't really go into them. But even within the folders, it's like a little arrangement, you know? And it's a, it's a series of screens. It's a spatial metaphor of like screen one, screen two. It's a big linear sideways one-dimensional list of screens where you can swipe back and forth through them. There's no up and down. Folders is like another little portal into the world. You can only go one level deep, and it's another grid of icons. Um... That's things people are used to. And if you put, like, you know, Safari in the upper left-hand corner and it didn't stay there, you would be pissed. You'd be like, when your thumb go, that's why your thumb can find these things. When you pull out your phone <laughs> or your iPod, your thumb finds the thing you want because that's where you put it and you decide that's where it's going to go and you get that muscle memory thing. Now, in the four minutes remaining, we'll have our That's Fine for Merlin moment, which is where you oh. could have come in at any point but hadn't. The that's Fine for Merlin moment is that, well, that's fine in 1984 when we had seven files, but now we've got a bazillion files. So all this spatial business is crap, and it's pointless, and we shouldn't use it. Well, I would point to iOS as an example of a modern incarnation of a spatial interface showing its value, even though we're in you know the year 2000, uh, in the next millennium and stuff. But... Uh, I keep coming back to that spatial recognition is still the most efficient way you have to, to recognize stuff. Uh, if you have a lot of things, you have to fall back to less efficient methods. Yes. Yeah, so, for example, on iOS, if you have eight bazillion apps and you can't find them because you're sick of swiping through the screens, you might resort to search. But that's a, that's a resort. If we said to launch any app, you have to do search, you'd say that, that sucks. Give me back my little grid of icons, right? You know, th there may be better ways to do it than a grid of icons, but it's, it's, you know, for a small number of things, it's good, and we want to use that when we can. And if you happen to install more apps than that and you don't like rummaging around for it, then, yeah, you can resort to search. Uh, but, but it's still a fallback. Browsing would be somewhere in the middle there where you don't want to swipe around from screen to screen. You want to have some sort of browsing interface where you can tap, 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 and drill your way down to something. But you really don't have too much of a hierarchy in, uh, in iOS uh, for that. And, and the Finder is similar. I think it should be a hierarchy of things where, and it kind of is in Mac OS X, where, for example, applications in Mac OS X, the applications you use the most for regular people are in the dock. That's, that's a pretty much a spatial interface. You put them where you want them in the dock. They stay there. The dock is always in the same place, assuming you don't move it. And that's your top level of finding stuff. And if you have more than that, like most of us do, you want some sort of second level. Let's go with search. And, and I use Quicksilver for that, where you know it's, it's search, but it's really, really fast. And it's limited to just applications where you're like, OK, it's not in the dock, but I know I have this application. Let me do command space and type the first few letters of the thing. Oh, there it is. Hit return, right? But that's, that's the second level. Very, very few people, I would imagine, are 
using Quicksilver to launch an app that they have in the dock. Maybe if they're always on the keyboard and their hands aren't on the mouse, they might find that more efficient. Uh, and in Lion, they're adding one more intermediate layer there where if it's not, you don't see it in the dock, well, we'll give you like Springboard and Mac OS X right? so with this launch pad thing where they're going to give you essentially a spatial view of all your applications mm. in a grid, presumably arranged in some fashion. I don't know if you can manually arrange those things or if they're alphabetical or whatever. Uh, it remains to be seen whether this will be truly spatial, but they don't want you to have to resort to rummaging through the file system. And when it comes to rummaging through the file system, which we do do increasingly less with time, you could use a browser to do that if you want to just have one window and you don't really know where things are. Uh, or you could do it the pseudo-spatial way and hope you just don't get any browser windows in between. But the, the main pitch of the, the spatial finder is that spatial interfaces is good are good. And anytime you do something that makes them not work, you're probably making a mistake. And so in, the finder in particular, I think it's a shame that they ditched the spatial way to operate it simply because for many classes of work that is still the most efficient method and there's no reason to forego it entirely add the other methods fine make search better add browsing fine but there's no reason to kill the spatial way uh, and many reasons to keep it as evidenced by ios and stuff where that that's basically what they started with before they even had search it was all spatial and it worked fine and it worked great and people loved it and found it easy to use so yeah, how can i disagree with you i mean it makes sense that's why i didn't want to do this show because it makes sense if we had more time, you would argue more. Maybe we'll come back to it. I, I hope not, because I don't like this talk. <laughs> I feel like you said feel your like... piece. I don't disagree with you. It's fine. Spatial fine. Great. I want to talk about the finder where you fly through the file system. Like that, I know. You're bringing that up as a way to say, uh, making fun of this whole spatial interface. No one wants to fly through stuff, you know? What about that want... weird finder where things are up on the walls? It's like a 3D thing. You flip it around. And... You know what I'm talking about. I don't, but I've looks like a room. Of... You can put stuff on the walls of, the, of your room. Oh yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen those. It's weird. It's, yeah. No, but I, those... I, I gotta. We gotta stop. I gotta stop. I gotta. The real estate person waiting. I gotta literally get into her car right now. All right. All right. To be continued, possibly. Uh, we'll see. Don't send us email about it. We'll just because we don't need more email about this. But John, have a great week. Thanks for for compressing yourself down into just sixty minutes. I try. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to check out GetHarvest.com and FeltTip.com. And uh, you can follow John at, what is it, Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A on Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And we appreciate you being here today. Thanks, everybody, tuning in. Thanks, John. Have a great uh, Memorial Day weekend. You too. And that's it, everybody. We'll see you all again next week. Mm -hmm.